Okay, hello everyone, and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, your one-stop shop for cinematic nonsense. Uh, I'm Joe Gastineau, and joining me as always is Ed Davis. How are you doing, sir? Uh, I'm doing very well. I've had a bit of a sore throat this week, so I'm sorry if I sound extra sexy yep. for our audience. I know it's it's tough to contain yourself, but please try to, to uh, resist urges during this podcast. Yeah, especially if you're on public transport, uh, that can be awkward at uh, best times. Uh, in similar med- medical news, I have a little bit of a stiff neck because I slept on it funny, and I burnt my wrist at work, and it's a, it's now sh- kind of shaping up like a big Nike tick, uh, so I kind of look like I've been branded uh, by Nike. Uh, that kind of uh, waffle aside, um, what are we talking about this week, Ed? Uh, this week we're going to be talking about cult films. Yeah, it's kind of a, a, a weird thing, isn't it? Because like uh, cult film, the definition of which uh, it seems to be kind of very much shifting all the time. Uh, traditionally, the idea of a cult film would be something that perhaps uh, was not uh, very successful the first time round, and then has kind of kind of gained a niche audience or something that has a high kind of camp value. Um, but now it seems to be like shifting towards the degree that. Um, cult, though the expression cult can apply to pretty much anything that has a rabid fan base um, do you think that like, kind of, we're losing the meaning of what cult actually stands for? Uh, yeah I think so, but only to an extent because I think that a large a large part of the, sort of the problem of defining cult films is that now you have this kind of almost a cottage industry of people trying to sort of pre-make cult films mm. Um, sort of like the Grindhouse films or um, uh, Snakes on a Plane where they seem to be designed to be a cult film straight away mm. which to me sounds like commercial suicide because you know when you think of a cult film you think of something like uh, you know Bukuru Banzai and Adventures in the Eighth Dimension or um, to a sort of more recent extent sort of something like Scott Pilgrim vs. the World which is a film that didn't do well on release and kind of builds an audience later, an appreciative audience over time. Whereas the whole point of sort of blockbuster filmmaking or Hollywood filmmaking is you make something that makes money the first go round. Mm. You don't you don't want to be waiting years down the line to see line to see a return on investment. It's interesting that you bring up Scott Pilgrim there because um, this kind of feeds into the point uh, that I opened with that uh, pretty much everything Edgar Wright is going to do ever is going to be culty uh, on the basis that he started with uh, a cult TV show and his audience kind of feeds into that and he plays to his audience uh, very much kind of meeting their expectations of, of you know actors he uses and kind of riffs um, and kind of jokes and references and as we've just seen with The World's End last year references to you know other films other you know films that he's made and kind of it taking place in the same kind of continuity ish, the same kind of universe. Um is that something that kind of makes cop Scott Pilgrim as a cult film seem a little odd? Uh I think so well, I think it's it's odd just because it it still boggles my mind that someone paid so much money for an adaptation of, you know, a fairly obscure comic book. Mm. Um obviously 
comic books in general, superhero movies, it's all big business now. But, you know, I think we're getting to the point where everyone is kind of thinking, what uh, brands have we not actually turned into a film yet? And they kind of get deeper and deeper into the bench until you end up with just really bizarre stuff like Scott Pilgrim. But obviously there, I think the uh, material and the director obviously kind of synced up very nicely and had very similar sensibilities. Mm. But obviously that still makes for uh, sort of a commercial disaster in some regards. Mm. Do you think that this idea, that the idea that, that kind of cult films are changing to be kind of a slightly wider kind of a ranging uh, kind of group of mainstream films as well as maybe more niche titles stems from the fact that we have the internet now. Like the idea that cult films originally were, uh, I mean, there's a film about it called Midnight Movies, a, a, a documentary about the kind of what was seen as the kind of the godfathers of, of the cult film, that these films that kind of came out uh, and on an initial release weren't. Um, particularly successful and then they were resurrected for the midnight movie circuit and the films were Night of the Living Dead Pink Flamingos um, El Topo and Eraserhead those four films you definitely say that they're cult films um, but they are not the same as uh, the kind of films we talk about today even something like The Big Lebowski which is um, kind of as culty as you like but it was made by a subsidiary of a major studio it wasn't a flop on release. Uh, it's got kind of an A-list cast. It's not particularly uh, uh, kind of opaque or anything like that. Um, do you think that because the internet is around now and and it's so easy to share information rather than things going by word of mouth, the the definitions of a cult are bound to change? Yeah, I think also the whole thing with the internet is it. It becomes easier for studios to kind of key on thing, key in on things that have sort of big fan bases or, or fervent fan bases, and to kind of, uh, to kind of directly market towards them. And that obviously leads to a kind of reinforcement of them thinking just because this has an audience, that means it's going to be a success, which doesn't necessarily hold true, mm. um, because usually it means that uh, that audience likes the thing that you're going to adapt or the thing that you're trying to market towards them as it is and usually a lot warier of a film version Mm. and so it can be a bit problematic from actually trying to make money off of a property that in theory has an audience ready for it 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 always um, kind of struck me as quite odd when that approach was taken by studios I remember um uh, when Scott Pilgrim came out, going back to Scott Pilgrim for a second, that it seems like the ready-made cult title that a studio is going to throw money at is Universal, isn't it? I think, um, and they they throw money at it, and then they go to all the conventions and they screen it for, you know, basically nerds, people who like it, and then no one else goes to see it because it doesn't have any appeal beyond <laughs> that fan base, and then yet they were surprised that that happened. Yeah, especially because when you just look at the film, when you look at the adverts for it, the adverts are very clearly keyed towards the audience that have already read the comics mm. and to just kind of highlight all the stuff that's, you know, that people like about the comics, like the, the, the musical aspects of it, the kind of bizarre, con- the, the essentially the bizarre concept and central metaphor of having to kind of, of a young man having to deal with the baggage of a woman that he wants to be involved with and everything, but sort of actualising it as... Uh, physical ex-boyfriends that he has to fight 
and you know that stuff obviously is the, is what people liked in the comics and what drew them to it and the sort of the wry sense of humor but when you see that all on screen if you don't if you're not kind of uh, couched in the language of the comics then I think that it just looks bizarre and strange and obviously the the film has developed an audience of its own since mm. but I think that it it does seem that uh, it, it seemed more the case that Universal wanted to be in the Edgar Wright business right? and they wanted to be involved with something that he would do because obviously he's a very hot commodity and he's one of the sort of the most promising filmmakers of his generation mm. and uh, that perhaps was not the best thing for them in terms of their bottom line in the end. Yeah, it's going back to kind of the audience for a second. Do you think that um, we can define cult just purely on the relationship that an audience has uh, with with a film or or a property? I mean, something like the Rocky Horror Picture Show is very uh, uh, kind of notable for that. I mean, the film is a very successful film. Um, it's st- I think it still holds the record for being like continuously on cinema release. Um, I think it's been on continuous release for like 40 years or something stupid or whatever, like ever since it first came out. Um, but it's also kind of knowingly camp and uh, uh, kind of uh, knowingly kind of a bit wonky in places. But its kind of cult appeal comes from uh, the kind of the fervour with which the fans engage with it. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great example of one where the cult and the film are kind of inextricable from each other. Mm. Like, it's hard to think of the Rocky Horror Picture Show without thinking about people in an auditorium dressing up and sort of, like, reciting lines. And, you know, if you've seen uh, The Perks of Being Wallflower, there's a big subplot in there about people going to watch the Rocky Horror Picture Show and, like, doing uh, big stage shows in front of it and that kind of that feeds into the whole idea of the film at this point. I think it is one of the sort of the best examples of a cult film in that the people who like it and really like it are almost like acolytes for the film and go through these whole sort of ritualised kind of performances along with it. Mm. Um, yeah, and it's it, the, the kind of camp value is very important because I think that's the one of the qualities that attracts people to cult films in droves is when something is kind of either intentionally or unintentionally camp or that dreaded phrase so bad it's good mm, I think also I think sincerity is a big part of it because I think you can be camp and sincere mm. like I think that the Rocky Horror Picture Show is not only camp but it's a very sincere celebration of weirdness Yeah. Um, and I think that in terms of the so bad it's good things one of the things that draws people to a film that you and I are very fond of The Room mm-hmm. Uh, Tommy Wiesau's uh, uh, epic and uh, magnum opus is that it's a terribly made film which is very badly acted and terribly written but it's uh, it's an, uh, something that's undergone with such sincerity mm. and belief that what the what uh, that Tommy Wiesau believes that what he's making is genuinely like something Tennessee Williams would write mm. um, that uh, that's what makes it fascinating it doesn't feel calculated it just feels like uh, someone genuinely trying to kind of work for their feelings in a admittedly very incompetent way which is what kind of gets into the question of whether or not it's outsider art in a sense um and you could also see that in something like troll 2 which is also just terribly and incompetently made but it's people made by people who genuinely think they're making a statement about vegetarianism <laughs> yeah yes what that statement is who the fuck knows? <laughs> it is, uh, yeah, quite quite baffling, brilliant. Um, in terms of it being so bad, it's good. 
uh, and that yeah I kind of it's the it, I I feel the same way I do about that phrase and that kind of concept as I do about people saying their kind of musical guilty pleasures as if there's some kind of overarching kind of law that you should like certain things or that certain things are empirically good when that's just that idea is kind of madness really um but the the idea that like there are films that are perhaps you know not the greatest pieces of work that are enjoyed in a setting uh with an audience so something like reefer madness for example which is another one of those kind of midnight movie films um that kind of gained popularity it was a kind of a a, a kind of alarmist teenagers are running wild smoking drugs type film made in the kind of 30s um that uh um was screened ironically to audiences kind of like later on in the 60s and 70s uh, and they found great kind of hilarity in there um but then i watched it sober in my house and i just hated every second of it um <laughs> something like that can only really exist as a cult film in the sense that you probably need to be high or drunk or with other people uh not on your own sober uh, on a sunday morning yeah i think that again we're getting into the idea of the audience and sort of the participation kind of part of it uh, i think there are some that the appeal of it just makes no sense uh, unless you are in those sort of situations like i like the rocky horror picture show a fair bit mm. but whenever i watch it i always feel as if i'm missing out on about 80 percent of the pleasure of it right like if i'm watching it on my own um but you know paradoxically the thing that for many years put me off watching the Rocky Horror Picture Show is that the, that audience kind of participation part of it and just this the sense that in my mind sort of people who were kind of dicks mm-hmm. like sort of the Rocky Horror Picture Show and people who just went along to these sort of things and, and you know just kind of threw stuff at the screen or whatever and obviously you know I wouldn't want to take away the enjoyment they get from it but for me it just kind of seemed like this weird thing that sort of people who didn't really respect the film kind of participated in mm-hmm. or and also it kind of uh, it also just because there's a line in spaced about how it's something for repressed drama students who have too many posters of the Blues Brothers Blue Betty Blue and the Blue Brothers on their blue bloody walls <laughs> yep. um, so you know so, so for me I think it was always coloured by the audience to an extent even though it is actually a really fun film um with Nell and I is another example of a film that for years and years I didn't watch just because all the people who seemed to like it were dicks mm. who just kind of quoted it it's sort of to the point of being really obnoxious and that kind of took away from what a really interesting and funny film it is. And that raises an interesting point that like that's essentially the definition of snobbery someone who uh, doesn't engage with something not because of what it is but because of how other people react to it um and it's kind of peculiar that that uh that perhaps something like the rocky horror picture show that kind of interaction that kind of um excitement and that kind of that level of audience engagement is something that the filmmakers of that would have would actively encourage but other filmmakers haven't intended that at all i think there's such a theatricality to the rocky horror picture show that it almost feels like like a pantomime that happens to be recorded. Mm. Like, you get the feeling that if they were doing that as a live stage show, they probably would encourage people to kind of get involved in some regard. But, you know, obviously, there's a screen in the way, so people have to kind of uh, make the effort themselves. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's kind of weird that like that kind of thing will never be attached to that. You know, those those kind of really cynical films that you mentioned at the start, things like Snakes on a Plane, and uh, I'm kind of squarely aiming my ire at Mr. Rodriguez with with things like Machete and the, the Grindhouse kind of idea. Um, but then other stuff like Hobo with a Shotgun is something else that's come out in, in the kind of the wake of those. Um, no one's ever going to feel any kind of affection for those films because they are so cynically uh, kind of engineers, really, aren't they? Yeah, they're clearly designed with a sort of a template of someone saying, what makes a cool film? And then just kind of trying to reverse engineer a cult sensation from that as opposed to someone... Like so, doing something like I don't know, like Repo, Repo Man, which is a film that's built a court audience because it's so strange and unique, mm. and unlike anything anyone had ever seen, and still really unlike a lot of films made since, and that didn't connect with a broad audience because of that, but then you know has found its niche over time. I think that uh, that is obviously something that's kind of sort of more pure. Whereas you know what you can see with Robert Rodriguez doing is deliberately trying to create something like those sort of films rather than uh, having it kind of be created organically mm. because he's someone with a reasonably uh, decent sort of commercial record and I think he wants to make films that are sort of successful mm. and the way to do that is by sort of pandering to people yeah I, I never really kind of got my head around Grindhouse I feel like it's such an alienating experience that's probably enjoyed mostly by people who have never seen a Grindhouse film. Yeah, because you're sort of vicariously enjoying this experience that people had in the 70s and 80s watching sort of sleazy horror films. But again, you've got people who are sort of deliberately trying to recreate a feeling, a, a kind of movie that doesn't really exist anymore because the sort of the sleazy horror films that used to be Grindhouse are now sort of A-list <laughs> A-list films and sort of old shitty B-movies now get turned into blockbusters mm. um, but also you're trying to do it in instead of going to an actual Grindhouse cinema somewhere that's like really sleazy and sort of down rent you're watching it in a mega, in a multiplex mm. and you know that kind of heightens the sense of something being super duper artificial now, I kind of really wonder if like the kids of today you know cause that's who I'm talking about if they even understand what's going on because it's quite I mean when did when did uh, Grindhouse come out was it like 2007 8 maybe uh, yeah 2007 like is it is it conceivable that someone watches that and they're not really seen a film that it, on film in a cinema uh, so they're not really familiar with all the kind of the pops and the things so they just they don't really understand what the aesthetic's about or what is being parodied therefore they don't really understand it's a parody and they're just like well why is this film look shit yeah, I think that that would probably occur for a lot of people. I think that in some ways it's kind of the reverse of what Tarantino usually does, because I think the whole thing with Tarantino is all of his films work as films and then they have references embedded in them. Mm -hmm. So you can come to like Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction and not know the kind that all oh, the, the suitcases referencing um, Kiss Me Deadly or that he's taken the idea of people taking net colours for names from taking a Pelham one, two, three, and you can still enjoy it mm -hmm. because it's a it's a really it's a really well made film and then, you know, you watch more films and you get the references and you kind of read into it a bit more and you discover things. Whereas I think with Grindhouse the references are the thing is that's the foremost thing and then the film comes separate. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so it's basically made. Uh, someone joked that uh, at the time, because the whole idea behind Grindhouse is that uh, I think Rob, uh, Robert Rodriguez went to Quentin Tarantino's office and saw that they both had the same poster for like a double bill from the seventies, and then they said, "Hey, we should do that." And so they essentially made a film for them mm. and no one else. They they made a film for all the people who owned that poster. Yeah, I I when I first heard about what they were doing, my first thought was genuine genuine excitement because and I think I've said this on on the show before, like I would have killed to see a grindhouse double bill made by Rodriguez and Tarantino, but under the conditions that grindhouse films were made. So they got a really shitty beaten up 16mm camera and a crew of like eight people and some actresses and they went out to the woods and they had like 48 hours <laughs> to shoot like an hour and a half of film and it got put together and that was it. But then when the actual project comes out and it costs $100 million and it's, you know, five hours long or whatever it is and it's, you know, just so far up its own rectum, it's it's kind of untrue. That just completely misses the point of what you're even talking about. Yeah, you kind of want them to have done the five obstructions version of uh, Grindhouse, mm. really. It's like Sit them. when The Artist was announced, they're like, we're going to make the film The Artist, but we're going to shoot it on a mobile phone. That was, That's ridiculous. <laughs> it's the exact same, exact same kind of problem. It's, yeah, it's idiotic. Um, but yeah, so yeah, not a fan at all of uh, those type of films and that. Um... Is the fan base of any kind of cult property being kind of very rabid and and uh, excitable? Is that kind of hard to penetrate sometimes? I think so. I think uh, certainly in uh, the case of something that's quite a, f- a phenomenon, I think you get sort of different strata of of fandom. I think a, a film that I I would consider a cult film because its audience is quite cult like even though it was not like a, wasn't a failure by any any sense is star wars obviously star wars one of the most successful films of all time um hugely popular i think pretty much everyone has seen it mm. but there is a core of the audience who are so obsessed with it and obviously you know stuff like the expanded universe and all the various sort of games and books and sort of spin-off stuff that's come kind of feeds into this but there is there's a core of the audience who are so hardcore and have to know absolutely everything about it that I think to people who are more casually uh, engaged with it uh, find that really really off-putting and kind of obviously feeds into the sort of the geeky stereotype of people being antisocial and uh, not really engaging with people who don't have the same level of passion or knowledge that they do I, I think in some cases that's quite unfair but I think in terms of perception I think that can be really off-putting to people who are trying to get into something when they see that there's this kind of core of people who are who will always kind of look down on them for either coming to something later or for not, you know, bothering to kind of know as much or do as much related to the thing that they love as they do. Mm. Yeah, and it, it, I've, it's quite odd now we see, I've kind of mentioned it before, things like uh, The Big Lebowski where... Um, the film, I think, even probably by the Coen's standards, um, or they're kind of—I don't think they quite expected what has happened with the Big Lebowski and its fans to have happened. Uh, it doesn't seem like it's deliberately pandering to an audience they want to 
uh, kind of tap into, but it just kind of has. But now it's kind of got almost completely out of control. Like there's a documentary film about uh, the fans. They have a, an annual Lebowski fest, and the actors from the films turn up to it. And I mean, you know, we're talking like Jeff Bridges and Julianne Moore turn up to it. Um, and if you look at the Coen Brothers catalogue, um, it seems to be the only one of their films that's had that reaction. Yeah, I think a large part of it is the heavy focus on weed. Yeah. I think, the, I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, the potheads, they like it, don't they? Because there's drugging in it. Yes, <laughs> drugging. In the same way that I think people who drink too much really are drawn to Withnail and I, or people who uh, do a lot of coke probably really, really get a lot out of watching Scarface. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I think that substance abuse kind of draws them in and makes them think oh this is a film for me whereas and you know that's fine if people really like it but I always kind of get a sense if people are watching The Big Lebowski just because the main character smokes a lot Mm. it it kind of seems to be missing a lot of the fact that it's actually a really funny deconstruction of sort of Raymond Chandler Mm. Um, and you kind of wonder if the Coen brothers are entirely... I'm sure they're happy that the film has found its audience, but do you, they, I always wonder if perhaps they look at the people who like their film and just kind of think, you don't really get what we're doing, do you? Yeah, because I, I always... I, I don't really know how much they've engaged with with that kind of side of it. Um, but, like, yeah, I, I find it weird that, um, as filmmakers, that they, they're not the kind of guys who really go for the obvious kind of geek targets and I think there are other things like you know I, I take your point about uh, you know the potheads and you know the reefer maniacs uh, liking the Big Lebowski but it's not like Cheech and Chong is it? No it's definitely not uh, jokes kind of directly aimed at them mm. it's just that you know weed obviously plays a, a central part in uh, why uh, Jeff Lebowski is perhaps not entirely certain of what's going on around him. Yeah, yeah, totally. And he does drink a lot of white Russians as well. Yeah, I think that probably those are the kind of the two things I think people that and bowling are kind of the three people that kind of, three things that people kind of take away from the Big Lebowski. Yeah, and uh, I think the fact that there's a certain sort of surreal edge to it, obviously that dream sequence, mm. obviously plays into that that side of it as well, and kind of gives the idea that it's. You know, like something like we're talking about El Topo, which is kind of a film that kind of people always thought of as being sort of a head trip. Something that you would kind of go to a cinema, drop acid and watch. Mm. Um, I think it kind of, for some reason, it kind of has been kind of lumped in with those sort of films, even though I think by and large, apart from apart from the dream sequence, there's not a huge amount of stuff in it that I think would really appeal. It's just kind of a very, I think it's just the fact that it's so amiable. Mm. You know, it's such a, a light-hearted romp. And obviously it features the funniest joke of all time, which is, I'm a fellow brother Seamus, an Irish monk. Yeah. <laughs> which just, just makes me laugh every time I hear it. Um, I'd like to see more films screened with narcotics. I think uh, a skagalong uh, train spotting <laughs> would be funny. Uh, I think a film of the addiction, where you're basically just, you know, guzzling down buckets of human blood... Uh, would be pretty funny and uh, Fear and Loving in Las Vegas anyone can survive that uh, 20 minutes in you know when the ether comes out then you know I think what these things should be encouraged um, rather than the usual kind of drink along with nail events um, speaking of kind of uh, 
intimidating fan bases and perhaps going back to the idea of them being dicks. Um, Kevin Smith's entire career... <laughs> there we go. <laughs> there we go. Um, like, he makes films for one group of people, uh, his fans, and his fans like seem to like films made by one person, Kevin Smith. Um, do you think that is kind of like the ultimate cultishness? Uh, yeah, I mean, if you change one word, it definitely... One, one letter, letter in, yeah. Yeah, one letter in courtishness, it definitely is. Mm. Um, I think it's, pro- it's a big part of it, because I think at a certain point, he, he seems to have stopped trying to reach beyond that audience. Um, and whenever people have kind of rebuffed him for trying to extend beyond that audience, he's just kind of retreated back to them. Um, so I think it kind of feeds into it like he panders directly to them and then whenever he suffers a kind of commercial or critical failure and he's had a a couple over the years um, he just kind of returns to their sort of their warm embrace Mm. and then stops trying and at this point he literally has stopped trying because he's pretty much retired except for the fact that he keeps saying he's got another film coming out and it all sounds incredibly self-indulgent but I think you know it also feeds into his his whole thing, you know, like he went against critics and said that critics don't mean anything and that anyone can be a film critic, even though, you know, it, the record shows that he wouldn't have a career without film critics because it was a film critic that said that people should check out Clerks at the New York Film Festival and that got it picked up, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that in that case, it, it, he makes the films for that audience because they're the only people who seem to show up for it. And obviously, he's become very wealthy and successful doing that. And I think everything about his persona now is just pandering to the people who enjoy his films, rather than you know trying to grow as an artist or try to make films that are sort of interesting to anyone who isn't already in the Kevin Smith kind of fan base. Mm. And is it safe to say that his films are fucking terrible? Uh, past a certain point, uh, you know, I think. Which point is that? Like the first ninety minutes of his career. <laughs> Um, I think there's interesting stuff in everything up to Dogma. Right. I think there's in, there's interesting ideas, and I think there's a genuine sense that he's trying to grow. And then something like Jane Silent Bob is kind of... I, I think that was meant to be him kind of saying goodbye to all of that and getting rid of all the indulgences. And they did Jersey Girl, which you know was an, an, an honest attempt by him to kind of do something different. Uh, which didn't catch on with audiences, so he went straight back into doing that sort of thing with Clerks 2. Hmm. Uh, and then he's never really kind of broken out of that um, you know like he did cop out and people said well this is terrible and he said well I just did it as a job for hire and you know what? how can you judge me for just doing a job for hire and you think because you're a director and you made a bad film <laughs> yeah that's exactly how you judge you because uh, that's what happened uh, <laughs> yeah um, yeah I think his films are terrible like dreadful like I, I, I watched Clerks again the other day um, and I used to love I used to love all his films. Uh, but I kind of tuned out after Jay and Silent Bob. I, I didn't really like that at all. But like the other four, I, I used to really like. And over the, like the last couple of years, I've rewatched them all. And Clerks was the one I was scared the most about rewatching because I I kind of would always say, well, Clerks is genuinely excellent, and the other films, okay, they've got their problems, but they're okay. And I've rewatched them all over the last last couple of years, and. I realise that's not true. These films aren't really okay. They're actually quite shit. And there's a couple of good bits in each one, but that's really it. And then I thought, well, I don't want to watch Clerks because oh, I genuinely enjoyed that film. Um, and I rewatched it, yeah, the other day. 
and it's it is good to be fair, clerks. I'm I I wouldn't want to take that away from it. That's a good film, but um, yeah, he uh, he hasn't done anything good since then. Apart from that uh, guest spot he did on the sitcom Joey, playing himself, <laughs> which is probably his career high point. Um, but yeah, I and yeah, Kevin Smith fans, what a bunch of assholes! Like seriously, <laughs> I mean, I've had terrible experience with him. I got, I got into a near fist fight with someone over over clerks in a pub about six weeks ago. Really? Um, yeah, because like, uh, I said I liked Anchorman, and all I said was I liked Anchorman. I didn't say Anchorman's my favourite film, uh, and they were just like, "Oh, fuck off!" And I was like, oh, man, "That's a bit of a that's a bit of a rea- overreaction." I felt first of all, and then like the, 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 the then he kind of used the clerks as a as a uh, as a as an example of something that's really funny, and I was like, "Well, oh, yeah, clerks, all right." But Kevin Smith's not very really good, and then then they were like, "What?" and the gloves came off, and then I was just like, "Yeah, dude, chill, chill the fuck out." And then it's kind of needled all for the evening, yeah. And it came to almost blows later on in the evening. Um, uh, he, uh, yeah, and this gentleman got drunker and drunker and drunker, um, and uh, yeah, called me a cunt to my face, uh, and then it almost got into a fight. And I know I literally only met him two hours before that, <laughs> um, and yeah, then he had to be taken home, and uh, he had to like send everyone an apologetic text the next day. <laughs> wow! Yeah, it was great. <laughs> I yeah, I like being like almost, in, and it wasn't my fault. I was so pleased that like you know, because I'm pretty sure I can antagonise people in some way. Um, but like, I'm so pleased it wasn't wasn't really my fault that time round. Um, so yeah, anyway, Kevin Smith terrible. Um, uh, yeah, I'm glad we've kind of laid that one to rest. Um, <laughs> are there films that like? Uh, you know, talk about the kind of the drug aspect of Big Lebowski. Do you think that that ties into something that really shouldn't be a cult film? It's something like Days and Confused, which is widely regarded as a cult film. Um, but is the drug aspect of it more important than the what it was principal aim was, which was nostalgia? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, this is just from uh, me personally. I don't think of Days and Confused get Days and Confused as a drug film. I think of it more as a film in which people happen to drink and take drugs so i think it is more about sort of nostalgia and being young and sort of the last days of or the the last days of sort, of sort of being young and everything like that i think of it more as that but having said that i'm just thinking now of like the uh the the dvd covers of it which are always just kind of you know psychedelic colors and like a smiley face and everything mm. or a flower power sort of thing and i kind of wonder if perhaps uh, i've misjudged the appeal of it and that actually is like a big part of why people like that film, of which, uh, or, or rather, why maybe the studio think people like that film. Yeah, and it's kind of weird that, again, like the Coens, uh, Linklater's films actually lend like he, he's not like something he's deliberately going for, but some of his films do actually lend themselves to that cult appeal, but they haven't taken off in the same way. And that's something like Slacker is actually regarded better by cineasts rather than by kind of. Uh, Stoner Dropouts, which is entirely the cast of the film, essentially, uh, or something like um, Scanner Darkly, which is you know an LSD trip of a film, uh, isn't really held up in the same way either. No, I, I, I think that's very interesting. But they're also both at sort of different ends of the scale, I guess, in terms of release. Because Slacker was a very, you know, it was basically just him going round Austin filming his friends, more or less, mm. uh, and having them having sort of strange and bizarre uh, conversations whereas a scanner darkly you know was made with a 
not a huge budget, but a reasonable budget with big stars and everything. And I think that the whole rotoscoping thing, although it fits the sort of the the, the story and obviously fits the 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 uh, the Philip K. Dick novel, um, I think is probably something that people find very off-putting as a visual style. You mm-hmm. know, it's not something that people see very often. I can only really think of those two films that he made with it, that and Waking Life, uh, which is actually a nice midway between the two because it's the same style as A Scanner Darkly, but with the sort of the tone and structure of, or lack of structure of uh, Slacker. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think that they're, they're both at kind of opposite ends of the scale, whereas uh, Dazed and Confused seems to be somewhere in the middle of those. It's sort of a mid-budget film with a, a cast of up-and-coming stars uh, no one hugely famous in that, um, or not. No one hugely famous at the time, mm. is there? I don't think so. Lots of people, lots of people who have since gone on to be huge. Mm. Yeah. Um, here's a question, um, and it stems off this: the fact that um, I was saying about cineasts liking slacker. Um, do you think that cult films, by the definition, can't really be considered to be genuinely kind of worthy in any way? Um, because I'll be honest, they never are. I don't. I think in terms of whether or not they are, I think most of them aren't. Mm. I think most of them aren't held in the same court regard, sort of regard. Whether or not they should be, I think, is another matter. I think something like, you know, the thing, which I think is a court film because obviously it fit, it fits most of the the things that we talked about in that it wasn't very successful when it came out, but has you know through home video become something of a considered something of a masterpiece and it deserves to be because it's amazing mm. um and also it kind of goes into the something that we haven't really talked about but i think that one of the prerequisites in some way for a court film is whether or not something is kind of extreme i think that something like i think the reason a lot of horror films and a lot of sci-fi films develop cult audiences is because they push the envelope of what you can do in those genres mm. and in terms of sort of practical effects and just being disgusting, the thing goes pretty far out there, mm. um, and I think I think that's why that's one of the reasons people kind of respond to it. But it's obviously grafted onto a story that's brilliantly told and really good performances and just a atmosphere of utter dread. Mm. Uh, but I think that it, it will always struggle to be rec- rep- recognised as a masterpiece outside of sort of genre critics and genre fans just because it's a horror film and a sci-fi film and there seems to be a certain degree of uh of sort of snobbishness directed towards them yeah it's the same as like even something like pink flamingos which does get kind of uh noticed by critics but it's always with the caveat isn't it Mm. that it's like trash Yes, it is, but obviously it's trying to be trashy um, and trying to push the envelope. In you know, the, the central story is about people trying to be the most disgusting human beings who have ever lived. Mm. So, so it obviously has a deliberately trashy aesthetic and story, but it plays into uh, it, it, it's doing it in kind of to such a degree of kind of ludicrousness and sort of even sort of to a, a, that it kind of attains art but at the same time people always think of it as that film that ends with divine eating dog shit mm. which is which you know is a harder thing to make a case for as being a great work of cinema than you know <laughs> Citizen Kane yeah well it's it, people talk about that shot in Lawrence of Arabia where like Omar Sharif comes out of the mirage mm, divine eating a dog shit a real dog shit mm, I think that's kind of cool <laughs> um, I'd argue for that any day over that anyway um 
we're not talking about cult films just because we couldn't think of a subject <laughs> to do this week. There's actually a reason, um, because uh, this coming Friday uh, sees the launch of the second semester of a uh, quote-unquote cult film night that I co-program. Uh, I co-program it with a friend of the show, Ryan Finnegan, and it's called The Five and Dime Picture Show, and I caught up with Ryan to have a quick powwow about what we're up to this year. Okay. Uh, so, Mr. Finnegan, our uh, difficult second semester for Five and Dime Picture Show coming up, what have we got in store uh, for the lucky general public? Uh, well, we're kicking off with an anti-Valentine screening of Harold and Maud, uh, which is one of your own favourites, um, followed by a screening of Bugsy Malone, which is one of my very favourite films of all time, probably the film I've seen most of all films, uh, which will be a sing-along screening. We then have Garth Marenghi's Dark Place Marathon, which is very exciting. Um, originally was the world premiere, not quite anymore, uh, but I think maybe the world's second screening of Garth Marenghi. Uh, then followed by Dig, one of the seminal documentaries of the last 10 years, um, followed by a night of partying, I guess. Probably not with heroin, or maybe some kicking in the face. Yeah, after that we have Plan 9 from Outer Space, uh, one of the worst films of all time, which will follow on from our uh, big screening of The Room, um, and then finishing with a beer bust screening of Dazed and Confused. That's, if I do say so myself, an incredibly solid season, uh, and you'd be a fool if you lived anywhere within the uh, South Yorkshire region uh, not to get along to that. Um, what do you think makes uh, a good uh, cult movie? Is it... Is it just that kind of niche appeal, or is it a so bad it's good thing? Um, I'm looking to you for answers here. Um, I have thought about this before, and we've spoken kind of extensively about the the, sp the spectrum of court, which is that there isn't one thing that makes a court movie. Uh, a court film can be a very popular film that found an audience that liked to dress up as the characters. It can be a film that was unappreciated and uh, has since been rediscovered, or it can be just a really awful film <laughs> that people like. Uh, so I don't think there's one particular thing. I just think it's a shared love of that film. Um, um, rep screenings are seemingly on the rise. Uh, nights like ours are um, fairly common around the country and around the world. Um, is that a reaction to the fact that possibly the uh, cinematic experience, as in going to the cinema to watch a film, uh, has come a little bit dry, a little bit kind of corporate, and a little bit kind of, well, frankly, uninteresting? Um, I think there's a lot of different levels to that, uh, which you could talk about for hours, but I think essentially these days films are expensive and I think people want more for their money, so to add an extra level of value is always uh, going to get people to leave their house. Films are available on demand, uh, so if you aren't getting people to get out of their chairs from home, why would they not just kind of watch it on Netflix or any, any uh, disc to the door system? And I think generally people just want a communal experience rather than to sit in a room on their own these days. And it takes kind of a special film to make people want to just go and sit in a room on their own rather than it being a blanket appeal, I think. Uh, me and Ed have uh, generally liked to wrap up uh, a podcast with a, with a kind of further viewing list. Um, what, if any, cult films uh, could you recommend to the listeners at home that may not have, they may not have heard of before? I do have a list in front of me. Over the Edge is one that I would probably recommend. Kurt Cobain's favourite film of all time, apparently. Uh, starring a very young Matt Dillon. Um, it's a very gritty late 70s movie. Uh, oh, yeah, Red Sun. That's a good movie. Um, 
I saw her at a film festival, kind of a rediscovery. Tashira Mifune, Alan Delon, and Claudia Cardinelli, uh, an old sort of uh, international production crossover that seems a bit lost with time. I suppose that's one great thing that uh, things like this and other rep screenings is good for is uh, uncovering those films that um, have generally been lost. Um, whether they're w culturally significant or not, it's, uh, it's nice to see them getting uh, some props. Um, so yeah, Five and Nine Picture Show starts uh, this Friday with uh, Harold and Maud. Um, so be there or be square. Thanks, Ryan. Cheers. Um, okay, that was a pretty unashamed plug, Ed. I'm very sorry for, for, for derailing the podcast. That's fine. We're just a platform. This is just a platform for our own endeavours. Yeah. I just don't have any, so. Um, so, yeah, that wraps up uh, our little chat about cult films. Um, I feel, I hope, hope, like, anyone listening to this, you will now be seeking out a copy of Pink Flamingos to see uh, a transsexual eating dog shit. Um, and, yeah, by all means, go nuts, knock yourself out. Um, we'll be back again. Uh, next time um, if you enjoyed the show please subscribe to us on iTunes give us a nice little review if you would follow us on Twitter um, and follow us individually on Twitter we're also on Facebook so go on there all that social media stuff uh, we're on MySpace Bebo uh, LinkedIn uh, are there any other ones? Um, Grinder. Grinder. we are on Grinder. find us now we are miles apart literally miles apart <laughs> so you won't get a two for one on our grinders. Um, so yeah, until next time, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.